today is our ag day for our micro-irrigation group, and we're going to turn it over to the well-talented and smart Miss Inge Bisconer and Paul McFadden of our micro-irrigation group down in El Cajon, and they got a great show today for us. So welcome, Inge and Paul. Hey, thank you, Rob. We're excited about our show tonight. We're uh, broadening our horizons a little bit beyond uh, the Golden State and looking at the whole Colorado River Basin uh, with our guests. We're very excited to have uh, Rita Sudman, the former executive director of the Water Education Foundation, on, as well as Pat Mulroy, uh, the former general manager of the Southern Nevada Water Authority. So these two ladies are on um, the phone with us tonight. We're going to have a little different format. We will interview each of them separately for the first half hour, first Rita and then Pat, for about 10 minutes each. And um, then the second half, we'll do something different and have both of them on the line and um, answer some questions that I think they'll both uh, they have plenty of uh, background and expertise to, to weigh in on. Absolutely. Paul and I think that would be a, a nice format. And what do you think, Paul? A little different, but we want to keep it fresh and keep it interesting. And uh, these uh, these guests, as Ingi said, are, are outstanding, and uh, we're very excited to, that they're here and anxious to hear what they have to say. All right. So our first guest has had an extraordinary career. Her name is uh, Rita Sudman, and as I said, she's uh, um, the uh, just recently retired executive director of the Water Education Foundation. Rita has had a uh, master's degree in telecommunic- telecommunications from San Diego State University after which she became a radio and television reporter and a producer before serving as the executive director of the foundation in Sacramento for 34 years. So she's had a a great bird's-eye view of what's been going on in California water for 34 years. She led a documentary television production team at the foundation that won four Emmys, several regional nominations, and one Telly Award. And she's also served on the President's Advisory Commission on Water for the University of California, and numerous other boards, including Water for People, an international program assisting people in developing countries to obtain safe drinking water. That's awesome. She's also received several special and lifetime achievement awards for her work on water education, but says she's proudest of being named a superhero by the California State Fair for educating Californians on water. And I must say that as a board member of the California Irrigation Institute, we were very proud to bestow upon her the Irrigation Person of the Year Award this last January as well. So Rita has retired, but has most recently co-authored a book called Water, More or Less, with a co-author, artist, and essayist, Stephanie Taylor. Fantastic book. This book is beautifully and eloquently captures the historic water conflicts and moments of change that California has experienced in the past in regard to water policy and the dramatic ways that droughts, floods, and water quality issues affect how we use water in our lives, our agriculture, and our environment today. It tells how we got to the point in time that we are today and provides some solutions to the many challenges that we face, and we really want to talk about that. The book is available on two different websites, the watereducation.org website as well as on Amazon. So welcome, Rita. Thank you. I'm really delighted to be on your program, and hello to all the folks in the Inland Empire. Thanks. Well, I think Paul's got a question prepped for you. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm I'm uh, excited to talk about water. You know, it's uh, it gets in your blood. And when I retired, I thought, well, maybe I can put this aside. But I really couldn't because I thought I had something else to say. And and uh, now I've done it. 
your book is fantastic. Uh, we've uh, been uh, not only reading it in the past few months, uh, but also going through it again today, and it, it's an exceptional work, so congratulations. Thank you. I think that the paintings uh, of my co-author, who's a really well-known artist, Stephanie Taylor, and then the uh, essays that she writes about real people, the farmer, the fisherman, the city person, add to the policy stuff, because as Pat can tell you, and I can too, you know, it's about real people. It isn't always about these policy arguments. The policy arguments are there because they affect real people's lives. Yeah. It, that, that uh, to me, was very special. So um, moving to our first question, Rita, obviously you've been involved with California Water for over three decades as kind of one of those uh, folks in the know uh, with many of the key players that manage uh, this precious resource for people, for industries, for the environment, uh, you know, that we all truly depend on. How would you currently characterize uh, folks in the state uh, um, in, 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 in response to these latest crises, uh, and how would you compare them to previously challenging periods of California water history? Well, that's a good one, because uh, I'm turning out to be much more proud of Californians than I kind of expected to be. I think they have really taken up the challenge, uh, and as Kevin Starr, the former state historian, said, uh, he brought a little forward in my book, they're reinventing themselves. And I think people all over the West are looking at that, uh, especially in California. The governor asked people to conserve 25%. Now, that was tough because uh, some communities were, were doing that, and many weren't. I live in San Diego. I'm formerly, I live in Sacramento, but I'm formerly from San Diego. San Diego gets it. Sacramento just didn't want to get water meters, you know, so... Um, to see Sacramento conserve 30% or so, I was really, really proud of that because they had never done that before. They hadn't ever stepped up like that. And so we've had a lot of communities do that. The March figures are out right now, and uh, with 24% across the state averaging out. I think that is fantastic. And so does our head of the state water board here in California, Felicia Marcus, who, who says... You know, a lot of that water in the urban folks is, uh, and that's what we're talking about, urban water use, is outside water use. And so, you know, if you have a lawn, put it on a diet. If you don't need it, get rid of it. And people have done it. And so it's really making a difference. Now, in regard to your question about the earlier drought, I wasn't covering water in 1977, 78. I was just getting my career in TV just starting a little bit, but I do remember, and then I came up to to the foundation a couple of years later, um, the fact that that drought was very short. It was intense, but it was short. It was a one-year drought. We've now had a drought that's off and on for a decade, and so we live with droughts more, and they're much more serious and extensive, and agriculture has really been hard hit, and that's why our groundwater has suffered so much, because in some cases they haven't gotten the surface water. All of these things didn't happen in 1977-78. Water was cheap. Um, water's more expensive now, and it's going to also be more expensive. So we're definitely in a different time. Public awareness is better now. It was good for a little while, put a brick in your toilet, but now we know it's a more sophisticated thing, 
than it was 35 years ago. So I'm very proud of Californians. Yeah, it seems like we've really stepped up to the challenge in both uh, behavior and hopefully technology as well. I think um, I think we all know that it requires both, and at least we're on the right track. So that that has been that's been heartening. You know, and agriculture um, has done that because they've had to pay more for water, uh, and so through the years they have gotten more efficient. Yes, yes. You know, I, I like to recite this statistic uh, of the uh, 5 million drip irrigated acres, which is one of the technologies to be more efficient with um, with uh, irrigation. Of the 5 million that exist in the United States, 65% of them are in California. You know, partly because we have a, a preponderance of, you know, high-value fruit, nut, and vegetable crops, but just because um, our farmers have been willing and able to adopt some new technologies. So that's been great. Especially in the Central Valley. Absolutely. So we have um, time for probably one more short question before we introduce Pat, and then, of course, we'll have both of you on on the second half, and we'll definitely want to talk more about ag. Uh, you know, this is the ag, ag show for the water zone um, in the second half, but can you kind of um, summarize, I know there was like a dozen of them, but you, you summarized 12 solutions at the end of your book which was right before the uh, chronology of what had been happening in California since the Well, thank, years. thank you for asking that, too. because I decided to write a chapter called Solutions, because so many people write about water and they write about all the problems, but if you go to a cocktail party, what do people ask you? Okay, what are the solutions? And if you start saying it's complicated, this and that, they just look at you and say, uh, excuse me, I've got to get another glass of Chardonnay. <laughs> and I don't blame them because I think that those of us in the business uh, deserve, and those of us who watch the business, like me as a reporter, um, people deserve answers. And so I sat down and 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 uh, thought about this. And there's nothing original that I said in the book because I think some of the best minds in the water world have said these things. So just to summarize, I'm not going to go through 12, but just to to shorten it, I think we need a new water ethic, and that's what we've been talking about earlier, about caring and valuing our water. Water has been cheap. You know, energy was cheap, and when it became more expensive, people learned how to conserve, and they learned more about the issue. So we can talk a lot about it, but a water ethic, and I think that this next generation is, is going to get that, and the millennials will, will, will have to lead the way for us. Um, also... Conservation is important, but it's not a choice between conservation and infrastructure. Both are needed. Sometimes we get into this argument of dams versus conservation. Some dams are needed. That will be for water transfer, etc. There won't be a lot of dams built in the West, but some may be because it'll work out. Uh, conservation will continue. So don't get into an artificial choice between those two. Now, in California, one of our solutions is to aggressively implement the 2014 groundwater law. Now, that's getting a little deep for some folks. What's the groundwater law? But basically, you know, groundwater is, is the water that's in the porous formations below our feet, and it's water that uh, agriculture and cities have often used if they can't get surface water or if the groundwater is of better quality. But we have wholly used so much groundwater that we've had sinking 30, 100 feet infrastructure cracking, and we can't continue this. If you drive through the Central Valley 
in the spring now, you would have seen all these almonds, and you'd wonder, well, you know, they're all blooming, so but where's that water coming from? Since on the west side, they only got 5% from the state water project. Well, it's coming from groundwater, and the agriculture has turned to groundwater and used groundwater, but they can't keep doing it because it's overdraft. The money is going out of the bank. Yeah, so it's unsustainable, unsustainable. It's not unsustainable, and it really is. So that has to be dealt with, and, and there, there's a good law. It's a law. I don't know if there's enough time. Frankly, there not, might they not be enough time to affect it, but at least it has uh, local people working on forming these committees and working on this. So another answer is to push for recycled water, certainly more recycled water in the urban area. It is expensive, but we need to do it. And uh, we need to uh, get rid of public perceptions, you know, that recycled water isn't a good thing. There's no reason why we can't use recycled water, get it clean, and drink it. Um, also, stormwater. Stormwater is a big uh, thing. In our yards, we have always had the idea of running that away from the house, but we now have to get into ways of using that, porous concrete, all kinds of ways of using stormwater, and not just flushing it out, it picking up dirt and going into our rivers. So using our stormwater, uh, technology will find ways to help us do that, too. And a thing we call gray water, and not the old hippie way of taking your washing machine hose and running it out into your yard. No, there's homes. Uh, I saw uh, home builders in San Diego County that have a system that's in the basement that recycles the gray water. Now, we're not talking about black water toilets, et cetera, but gray water. So this is the water that, you know, you use from your washing machines and etc. So that water can be used and put in directly into your yard. So you can have showers for flowers. So yeah, fantastic. I, I like that. I like that. And the very last thing is a lot of people ask about desal, and you asked me to run through them, so I'm doing it. Yeah. The last thing is desal, and people say, oh, that's the answer for California. You have a thousand-mile coastline. But it really isn't appropriate for every area. It's very expensive. In an area like San Diego County that doesn't have groundwater to store it, store water, that may be a good answer, and that's why they built a major project down in Carlsbad. But say in Orange County, just up the coast a little bit, they have a groundwater basin, so they've been able to, you know, put water in there, the recycled water, basically clean it up and then pump it out. So, again, uh, it's a specific, like it is in agriculture, to your soil, in desal, it's the whether uh, you have a groundwater to work with. So these are some of the answers. The bottom line is that uh, there are answers. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the, uh, um, the good news is that there are lots of opportunities for improvement. The, the bad news is that sometimes it's hard or expensive. But uh, I think um, Felicia is the one that likes to say that the solution is all of the above. We need to do a little bit. Right. Thank you. Silver bullet. It's the no silver, silver bullet. Yeah. So, so thank you, Rita. Let's let's um, now, uh, as we as we said, let's go ahead and introduce Pat and get a little more of a um, profile of her um, career as well, and then we'll get both of you to talk together on on the second half. So, uh, Pat, are you on the line? I am. Yeah, very well. Thank you for uh, calling in today. Let me let the listeners. Uh, know a little bit about your background as well. 
So Pat Mulroy, many of you may have heard of her as well, is a leading figure in Western Water and was the former general manager of the Southern Nevada Water Authority from 1993 to 2014. She was initially charged with getting more water for quickly growing Las Vegas. And she ended up being the principal architect in establishing the authority by forming alliances with neighboring districts and guiding the region through a major period of growth and drought. Part of her task was to convince stakeholders why Southern Nevada and Las Vegas in particular, was worthy of more water in comparison with all the other competing interests. In this task, she became active in water issues not only in Nevada, but throughout the entire Colorado River Basin and even the nation. And as a result, she has negotiated numerous agreements with her neighbors on the Colorado River, including international agreements with the country of Mexico, and she has secured more water for Southern Nevada in the process. She's also served on numerous boards and as resident of Southern Nevada for more than three decades. She's very active in the community as well. Also holds many um, awards, including the uh, National Jewish Medical and Research Center's Humanitarian Award, the University and Community College System of Nevada Board of Regents Distinguished Nevadan Award, and the Education Hero Award from the Public Education Foundation. So now that Pat's retired, she serves as a non-resident senior fellow at the Metropolitan Policy Program at the Brookings Institute and also serves as a senior fellow for climate adaptation and environmental policy at the Brookings Mountain West at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I first heard her speak in uh, Fresno at the International Center for Water Technology Conference a couple years ago, and she most recently gave a fantastic lecture at the Ann J. Schneider Fund Lecture Series in, uh, in Sacramento, which there's a nice blog about that lecture on the Water Education website as well. So, again, welcome, Pat. I think um, Paul has a question teed up for you as well. Thank you. Uh, w welcome. Uh, we're, uh, we've got so much interesting stuff here, Pat. We're... Uh, we're, uh, we're uh, challenge for time as we always are we we're so excited about uh, all this information and all this uh, uh, the, our guests we're, we're going to have to move along so uh, apologies for that but um, in, in a, a recent article about you was titled the the waters are who reshaped Colorado River politics which chronicled your challenge for the Colorado uh, River's infamous law of the river what sorts of actions did it take to do this impossible uh, task and implement change? That uh, that's a that's a huge task. I'm just we're just curious, and I think our listeners would be curious as well how you uh, how you dealt uh, dealt with that uh, situation. Well, first, it's never one person, and I'm would be speaking way out of turn to try to take credit for everything that happened over in the Colorado River Basin from, say, 1995 until now. I mean, it was a cultural evolution. I mean, we had come out of decades of being fiercely litigious, being very good at pontificating our own positions, but we had been doing very, very little listening. And I think during that period of the 90s was what I would call a period of readjustment. And there were some tremendous people from the various states that were at the table at the time. And we began to understand positions in a very different way. And I think that's the key to this, 
the key is the recognition that there are no winners and losers, that if you continue this kind of confrontational and litigious relationship, everybody loses. Probably the greatest example of this, and it was only about a week and a half ago, I actually heard a speaker from Arizona admit to it. When Arizona v. California occurred, Arizona ostensibly won the Supreme Court litigation. They were able to use the Gila and use that water for the Central Arizona Project, thereby creating somewhat of a deficit situation on the river. Well, you in California took back your pound of flesh when the Central Arizona Project went through Congress and forced a full subordination of the Central Arizona Project. So they won the battle but lost the war. That story repeats itself in Western water over and over and over again. So in the 90s, the recognition that beating our chest, threatening to go to court, hiring the most acrimonious lawyers wasn't going to get us anywhere, that we were really in this together, and that if we succeeded, we all succeeded. If we failed, we all failed. And because of the drought and the deepening drought, whether you say it's a function of climate change or whether you don't ascribe to climate change science, it is pretty irrelevant. It's been the reality on the river, and it gave us no time for 20 30-year um, litigation. So the key for all of us was a greater sense of understanding to where when we finally reached a point where we were ready to have dialogue with Mexico, to think that all seven of us were willing to allow three members of our group to represent all seven states was such an enormous migration from where we had began, begun. Because every one of us can argue every one of the other states' positions. We intuitively know them. And I think that's the secret. The secret is to, to in, in winning is to know thy enemy, huh? <laughs> well, he's not the enemy. That's the whole point. Thinking of them in terms of an enemy in, means that you are thinking that there is someone who's right and someone who's wrong. And that's the fundamental problem. There's no one 100% right and there's no one 100% wrong. Each party is passionately representing the needs of their community and struggling to think how to move those communities to a different place in order to adjust to changing conditions. That is not an easy lift. And being able to look at that person across the table who has very different interests than you do, has a very different constituency, a different mix of users, but has the same inherent need for the resource, and understanding that they are not the enemy, they are not Darth Vader out there, that's what makes the difference. 
yeah, well, that must have just been a huge paradigm shift from all the threats of litigation to actually working together. And I think that's what you were voicing in your lecture last month, is that it was imperative to the health of the whole Colorado River Basin for California to find its way to that place. Um, yeah, it's always been stunning to me um, in many circles when I come into California to speak how little appreciation the Californians have for their relative impact on a much larger region. Last year, it played itself out in a way we could have talked about forever, but until we had to live it, people didn't completely recognize it. Because MET had done its due diligence, and had wisely entered into rotational following agreements and dry air options agreements with Palo Verde. They had banked water with us. They had banked water with California. We had completely changed the tone on the river to where CAP, meaning the Central Arizona Project, Metropolitan, and SNWA were working in tandem together on all projects. They had been able to store an enormous amount of water in Lake Mead. That benefited all of us because it propped Lake Mead up and avoided it falling into shortage conditions. So last year rolls around, and it had already been strained somewhat the year before, but last year was the worst. Metropolitan had to, as it had negotiated and as it was allowed to do, take the water that it had in storage because it had nowhere else to go. There was no opportunity for them to bring water in to satisfy the other 50% of their demand that they meet through, their, uh, through the state water project. And so they had to drive Lake Mead down faster and further than it would have gone down had they not been in that position. So cooperation really saved them from, you know, one disaster. That's, uh, um, well, okay, so we've set the table. Fascinating stuff. I think we're ready for a station break, and then we'll go into the second half with both of uh, you ladies to uh, talk about um, some more specifics. Rob, are we ready? Yes, we are. We're going to take a little break and do some commercials. And you're listening to The Water Zone on KCAA, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM. Stay with us. Call in. Let's talk. We're back live. With the Water Zone, I'm Rob Starr, along with our guest hosts, Miss Inge Bisconer and Paul McFadden, and their wonderful guests, Rita Sudman and Pat Mulroy. It's all yours, Inge. Thank you, Rob. Uh, appreciate that. Well, let's uh, jump right into uh, some questions for, for both of our guests. Uh, question is, with water uh, transfers being uh, perceived as a, a possible solution uh, from ag to urban or areas uh, of uh, lower uh, water value to higher uh, uh, value areas where water provides uh, uh, 
all kinds of uh, uh, benefits to, to not only urban but for ag use. How do we how do we manage that finite resource equitably for both uh, both parties? Not just both ag and urban, but industry, environment, uh, which are also critical uh, parts of of that uh, equation. Um, just uh, uh, you know, not not just water issues, but the economies and and, and the value of of uh, creating a, a sound environment for uh, fish and, and uh, for humans. And it's a very difficult question. And I would just like, uh, Rita, if you would please uh, take, a, take a stab at that and, and tell us your thoughts on, on the value of transferring water and, uh, from uh, uh, lesser to higher areas and so forth. Well, you've thrown a lot in there. And uh... I'm sorry. It's probably good to, that's okay. It's a complicated thing, but it's probably good to start with California because we have lived under the um, the whole concept and feeling when we talk about transfers. The first thing that comes to mind is the Owens Valley and the movie Chinatown and the the actual story of that, where secretly land was bought up and and a, a birthright was lost. Now. Now, it ended up to be a different kind of a place, and some could argue it's a good place, but it wasn't done in the right way. So California has been very slow to come to transfers. We have done that now. We have more transfers, but they are voluntary. Every time a big drought comes up, like the one we had last year, uh, it, it's brought up that we should have a commission and we should uh, have more uh, forced transfers, etc., and um, that just won't be the answer because, as Pat said, you know, if you're going to force transfers, then if you're going to force anything like that, you're going to have litigation that goes on for years and years. So, you know, you get more with honey. So if you have voluntary transfers, and, and so we need to move in that direction, we are trying to streamline that so we have more of that. And I do understand uh, some of the feelings that there are some laws in California that you can't transfer more than X amount of water out of your area because nobody who's in charge or nobody with a water district or owning land would have the right to sell out your total birth right. But can there be sort of transfers and can you, you know, get either money or other uh, commodities, etc.? Yes, transfers are definitely the way to go. We have to make them easier. And again, that has to do with sometimes having the infrastructure that you need for that so that you can move water from a pro one project to another. These were always built as separate things in California and the West, but we have to look at how these projects can work together and, uh, like Pat was talking about, um, break down some of those barriers. So I think that we should support water transfers, we should keep an open mind, and we should look to uh, regulations that make it easier to do because we're going to need them. And I'm going to push back a little on the words you were using. I, I've really started to bristle, and for me this is really sort of a, a very different approach. I mean, I'm an urbanite. I'm a city girl born and raised in the city. I have no farm ties. I have represented a district that is completely urban. But there's something fundamentally wrong in the language we use when we say from higher, from 
to a transfer it to a higher use. Right. I sit on the World Economic Forum right now, and I know from the data globally, and we have a global food market, that world food production has to go up by 50 to 60% by the year 2030. California is an integral part of the global food chain. So I come at this when we talk about transfers. People talk about it in terms of permanent transfers. I think those happen where they need to happen, but when you look at the urban areas, really, they've been being a, they've been able to facilitate a lot of urban growth with either reducing their overall water demand or not needing to increase their, their water usage. Where it becomes critical is an urban ag partnership. That partnership plays itself out in times of drought where both urban and ag are willing to see the drought coming and willing to take measures early in order to avoid what California lived through last year. There is an agreement right now being circulated on the river that has been agreed to in principle by which all the states with their user partners will cut back their use when the lake hits certain elevations to avoid the system from crashing and from avoiding the worst of all possible worlds. That is going to require a partnership with the agricultural sector. The urban sector will do its part. They will either help mitigate financially to keep the community whole, but it allows the agricultural areas to be a part of the solution without devastating the community in, in the path of doing it. Because they don't take enough out of production to shut the community down. Right. They bring in enough revenue to be able to buy new farm equipment, be able to rest some soils, take a fraction of what they're using out temporarily, not permanently and allow that to build up a drought bank. If we can start talking about those kind of partnerships right now and forget this whole, and one more economist gives me this speech and I'm going to start screaming, this notion of moving water from lower uses to higher uses. It takes more water to create a lithium battery than it does to grow um, a certain amount of alfalfa. I mean, it's insanity. Yeah, I remember you, you, you mentioned that in your lecture that, um, you know, people blame alfalfa or demonize certain crops, and yet most people had drank some milk or eaten some cheese or had some dairy products that day, and that our cell phones probably consume more water than anything in our lives around us. Well, right. I mean, I we become so myopic. We, we don't understand everything has a water footprint. And that, that water is such an inherent sorry. part, such an unseverable part of everything we eat, we drink, we produce, we manufacture, that it is crazy to put a pure economic value on it without looking at 
how it feeds into a larger global economy. All right. Well, um, that, those were great comments on that question. Here, let's let me be the bad guy and talk about a worst case because I, I really would love for our listening audience to benefit from both of your experience on what could happen. Worst case, can can you help paint a picture of what could happen uh, to our lifestyles here in the West if we don't manage water well and um, and or, for instance, as you were talking about Lake Mead falling below the 1,075-foot level, what happens then? Uh, well, I think it's, look, I think had we gone through what California and the Colorado River Basin experienced last year, add two more years to that of the same hydrology, and you would be exactly in that worst-case scenario. Lake Mead drops below elevation 1,000 or 900. No water leaves Lake Mead and gets to Lake Havasu or to Imperial. It's irrelevant at that point what kind of a water right you have. Completely irrelevant. There is no water to divert out of Havasu or out of Imperial for purposes of California. And Make like that then that on, uh, an event that, that combines with two, three more years of last year's Sierra precipitation, and California has a disaster. Okay, so especially if the current relationship between the two parts of the state has not been fixed, if the people have not been able to find common ground to be able to approach drought management in a more proactive way rather than what today's regiment forces, which is an extremely reactive mode. Yeah, so that's what you were meaning by California has to find peace. Now, Rita, what, what would you say to that? Well, I would say that she hasn't used the word delta, but that's the word that uh, is the operative one in California. Um, that's a big problem because we have this place that people argue about the way they, the way Pat described on the river, but they haven't come to agreement on how to fix this crumbling area that water does have to go through legally, et cetera. So um, I, I'm concerned that we can't get that solved, and if we can't, we can't do water transfers. We can't do those partnerships because the people south of Stockton aren't getting the water. In the meantime, we have fish species that are going extinct. We have 18 fish species that are on the verge of extinction. And we have plants that, you know, wetlands, etc. So we have a lot of things that are in a worst-case scenario, but a lot of it has to do with, with making decisions about infrastructure in our delta. Yeah, and the the old mantra of simply stop the pump, stop the water from being diverted has been proven through the continual demise of these species to be completely ineffective. I mean, these these uh, litigations that occurred and the law and the um decrees that came out of them that shut down the pumps and uh, not only did it cause massive problems 
in the South, it has not saved a single fish. Well, and that's it the reason that the governor supports the flagrant example because it of environmental failure. Help this reverse flow thing, which we don't have time to talk about, but. Uh, there does have to be something decided to be done with the Delta because water exports legally will continue, So, but we're not doing it in an efficient way and we're not doing it in a way that, that works for many people. Okay. Let's, uh, let's talk about best case. Um, what do you both see in terms of... Uh, 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 your vision for excellent uh, water management leadership. Uh, in uh, Pat, you talked a little bit about just finding common ground and working together. That obviously would be uh, huge uh, and, and has uh, been huge for you in the, the river basin. Uh, we sure could use uh, some more of that in the in the Delta uh, basin. But how how do you see a new water ethic and an evaluation water? Uh, that will be embraced by everyone, uh, urban, farm, uh, ag, industry. How do you, uh, gov and government, obviously, how do you both see that? So, uh, Rita, would you take a, take a crack at that one, please? Well, water ethic does have to do with uh, value, too. And as, as we learned in Adam Smith in our Econ 101, why are diamonds so valuable? And water so cheap uh, when you know you you need water. Um, so I think one of the things is we have to have a, a value for water. We have to have more of a value for water, and we know it is going to cost more. But I would say two words: imagination and innovation are what we what we really need. And I think that we can get there with those things. And I think we have another generation coming along. We can reinvent some of these things. Uh, some of it is technology, and some of it is uh, grit and wanting to make solutions and get to the table, as Pat discussed, and make some deals. Focus our thinking. There's nothing like a crisis to focus our thinking and give us a political will. And, and that's what Americans are good at. They're good at whenever there's a crisis. We've seen some good things come out of this drought in California. Uh, but they have to do with uh, people rolling up their sleeves. Okay, Pat, what would you say to that? I think everything Rita has said is absolutely right, but the table has to be set in order for innovation and um, to be able to be effective. And in order for um, innovation to even have a forum and an audience, it can't be done in a in a segmented way, you can't enter into an agreements in perpetuity anymore. Given climate change, we're managing water supplies into a cone of uncertainty. What you establish in perpetuity is a process, a process that has the right people at the table that make the decisions year to year, that have the ability to be able to take actions early and protect the entirety of the state. It is unreasonable to think that our approaches of the early 20th century where we entered into agreements that last forever is anything that can possibly happen. We don't know what it will take for species to survive, not in their entirety. There are great scientific theories that need to be tested 
We do know there are opportunities to store water. There are opportunities to cross-invest in various sectors and push innovation, uh, technology development, new practices at every turn of the bend. But it will take a table that everybody agrees to sit at and work in partnership to achieve those ends. In a fractured, hostile environment, no innovation will be able to be as effective as it could be. And it will run into a wall much faster than if we change the conversation to one that failure is not an option. And in order for the state of California to survive, all its pieces have to survive. We got a caller. All right. You ladies ready to take a caller? Sure. Okay, bring it on. We have Mike on the line. Hi. Uh, a great conversation, great dialogue. Uh, it's the first time I've heard about the stopping the pumps, uh, not having any beneficial effect on the endangered species that are being trying to, trying to be protected. And um, I'm wondering, is that, uh, awareness uh, at all starting to be understood within the decision-making environment? I guess it's the, it makes up California water management decisions. Well, uh, Mike, uh, there is a there's a lot of discussion about that, and there are some scientists and there are some fish biologists that would argue with that. But the reality is, we stop pumps, and the fish aren't getting any better. And I think that's just that shows that uh, the problem is so bad in the Delta that we have to do a number of things, and the pumping is only part of the problem. So there is that discussion at quite a high level. I mean, you've got invasive species in the Delta. There are land formations that are creating death traps where the young indigenous fish are being trapped and they cannot move. So, I mean, there are a series of factors that play into this. But so far, there has been a stoic resistance to having a conversation around the entirety of the problem and really having a meaningful dialogue on how to mitigate it. And one of the big problems is that the, the landowners in the Delta uh, are longtime water rights and uh, with in other areas too, but they get their water for free and they have struggled with uh, the environment there and they don't want anything to change and they have a fear that if if the system is fixed with the uh, infrastructure and these pipes are built or on some other structure like that, that we won't, the state won't keep the water fresh. We won't release all this fresh water that keeps the water fresh for their farms, and for also some drinking water for the East Bay area. So um, that's, that's, they, there is a political power there that's very strong, and that's why we've in part of this quagmire is because the people living there and the powers that be there don't want any change. And I, I agree with Rita, and that's why, and she and I have talked about it in the past, establishing a process that creates a weighted power that creates a power structure that is that is equitable that oversees 
and balances on an annual basis in a very iterative way as conditions change. To have that process in place, that everyone can have confidence that that process will not leave anybody behind at the railway station, everybody will have a piece of this, I think is all important. It, it occurs to me, both Pat and Rita, that you're both in a unique position and have unique knowledge, and I hope that you do continue that conversation and, and, and do it in a public format. I think you have a lot to say and could really help move well, forward. We haven't been able to get water out of our blood, so we're still in it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is the beginning of a, uh, pro, uh, you know, a continued conversation to help solve these problems. We, we have just a couple of minutes left, and I'd like to give each of you an opportunity, say a minute each. Um, what, what top one or two things would you like to leave with, with our uh, listening audience? Well, I would like people to, uh, I'm sorry for jumping in here, but I would like people to quickly think about where their water comes from. And if you don't know where your water comes from, find out. You can find out through the Water Education Foundation. I used to run that organization. I still believe in it. But once you know that, you can start being a little more intelligent about decisions you make because you get water and you need to know where it comes from, and then you have a power. And I think that's where we need to start and we need to tell our children, what's your address, where do you live, and what's your watershed address? Because once we realize we're in watersheds and that those work together with other watersheds, we can raise a generation that maybe can do a little better than we've done. We did better than the last ones, like Pat described, at getting to the table instead of suing each other. Now let's move on farther. <laughs> All right, Pat? And I want to echo that. And let me just, let me just add a, a footnote to what Rita just said. We are in an era where we're shifting from water as a right to water as a responsibility. And that is a fundamental mind shift. With responsibility comes being accountable, being more thoughtful in how you behave and how you use your water. And that responsibility goes from the individual user in the home as he or she fails to turn the water off while they brush their teeth it starts with something that small and goes to the larger regional, multi-regional interconnections where the motto has to be failure is not an option. Well, we're about out of time. I appreciate you ladies coming on the show. Thank you for Inge and thank you for Paul and uh, Rita and, uh, and Pat. Thank you for joining us next week. Garish Balachandra. General Manager of Riverside Public Utilities.